All right. Well, uh, we are getting really close to the end of this series, and, and like Paul said, um, treading through some some difficult topics, I suppose, in some ways for our for our culture and where we're at. So, um, hopefully, you 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 can be gracious with me, and we can come along together in this conversation. But I'm going to crack into it. So we've been in the first three chapters of Genesis for the last month and a half. And we've been reflecting on this question, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And so far we've drawn out insights around uh, the nature of our work and our bodies and our suffering. And last week uh, we talked about our sexual differences as male and female. So this is part two of that talk. Uh, Part two of a talk is always a bit confusing if you haven't heard part one, but apologies for that. And you can have a listen back on the podcast. But yeah, like I say, um, we're trying to leave a bit of room for this one. So you'll remember Sarah's sermon from a couple of weeks ago where she made this important point that being made in the image of God is not about any capacity that we have, but fundamentally it's related to our embodiment. So to these uh, bodies of ours, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And last week I, I attempted to drill down, I guess, a little bit deeper into that insight by looking... Uh, at the way that embodiment explains uh, what being made in the image of God means, but also the fact that we're not just embodied into these androgynous bodies, but we're embodied male and female. So it's impossible to miss this point in the text. Uh, and you know, in Hebrew poetry, um, whenever someone, whenever a writer wanted to make a point, wanted to make their point really clearly, they would use this technique called parallelism. Uh, so, for instance, this is a good example of it in Psalm 1900, and, uh, verses 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. So you can see how these two lines parallel each other and reinforce the point. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. So the psalmist is using a lot of words in a kind of uh, parallel phrasing to, to make a point. You know, creation reveals God's glory. Uh, if we're going to put it in more propositional language. If we look at Genesis 1.27, we see the same thing going on. We see this parallel structure in in this part of this verse. So it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there's this uh, reinforcing of, of of the message. In the image of God, male and female. In other words, uh, this equals that. Um, So there's something significant about the pairing of male and female that reflects something significant about God. But what is it? Again, remember Sarah's insight uh, about image bearing not being based on our capacities, not being based on our soul or, um, you know, on having a male soul or a female soul or masculinity or femininity or anything like that. it, but just on embodiment. So, so uh, masculinity and femininity, um, they don't tell us much about who God is, but they do tell us about something about this relationship, something about this relationality that is, that is core to understanding who God is. So, um, so yeah, okay. So, so there are broadly two ways of doing theology. Just bear with me for a moment. There are two ways of doing theology broadly. Um, we can either speculate from below, so we can, we can think about God based on drawing analogies from the world around us, from nature. And in that approach, we might look, look at certain qualities of, of males and females and then apply those to God. So we, we kind of project up to God by looking around. 
and um, you know, recognizing that sometimes our language, well, always falls short of, of who God is. So this approach is sometimes called natural theology. But then we can also do theology from above. So uh, meaning that we start not by looking around the world for analogies through nature, but by looking at the events of God in history, like the revelation of God breaking into history through things like the Exodus, things like the Incarnation, um, the, the, the resurrection, um, the sending of the Holy Spirit, these concrete in- events that break into history. Um, the focus here in theology from above is, is what Scripture teaches, uh, what it reveals about God. So it doesn't draw insights from the natural order, but from external um, divine disruption. I prefer this kind of approach personally. I, I, I probably lean a bit more that way um, rather than natural theology. But uh, if with some trepidation, just for a moment, we do engage in natural theology, we could say that there's something about male and female bodies particularly when male and female bodies appear together, that reveals something intrinsic about who God is. A big clue for us is uh, verse 28, the following verse, where it says, immediately following male and female, he created them. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So without going into a talk about uh, the birds and the bees, um, it, it seems clear uh, that there's some important link uh, between being being made in the image of God, uh, male and female, and, and this capacity for fruitfulness and increase and multiplication. And it's sort of quite obvious in some ways. Uh, you can't create life without a male and a female body. Um, we don't have life without this pairing, this dynamic pairing. Now, this does not mean that those who are unable to have children or those who choose not to have children are in any way diminished in their status as image bearers. And I'll return to this point towards the end. Uh, But for now, I just want us to consider this connection between fruitfulness, between um, fruitfulness and multiplication and male and female. What does all of this tell us about God? Now, uh, Sorry to be crude, but it doesn't tell us that that God has a male and a female body um, or that he's half male and half female or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, quite simply what it tells us is that God is a relational God. The the Trinity is a relational, um, it's a relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is not a monad, he's not this singularity, but he's this relational, um, God is characterized by relationality. And his outgoing and ecstatic love is always being poured out. It's always going out and leading to fruitfulness. Jesus calls God his father, um, not because God has a male body, um, but because he is the source of all life. Um, In biblical cultures, which are a little different to ours, um, they believe that it was the male body rather than the female body that was seen as the source of life. So we see this in John 1.13, where it talks about the way that Jesus has given us the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent nor a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So for them, they they believe that um, it was the male which gave life. And so this relationship between the father and the son tells us a lot about God's identity, um, which is this always giving, always always. Um, pouring out and um, giving and glorifying. 
So the early Christians spoke of God, um, the Father, as eternally sending the Son, and the Son as being eternally begotten by the Father, and this kind of relationship of love. Now, we may, may be forgiven for thinking all of this uh, father-son language still sounds a bit uh, male. Um, and, you know, some feminist scholars have said things like Mary Daly says, if God is male, then male is God, um, which is a big critique. Um, but the early Christians didn't see God as being, uh, God the Father as being literally a male. So in a sermon preached in Constantinople towards the end of the 4th century. Church father called Gregory of Nazianzus explained that the words father and son should be used without having any bodily ideas in our minds. Otherwise, we would be back into paganism. That's how he saw it. Imagining a God who physically procreated in order to bring forth a son. He says, we accept the realities um, without being put off by the names. He also reminded the church that Father designates neither the substance nor the activity, but the relationship, the manner of being which holds good between the Father and the Son. Or as another preacher, uh, early preacher put it, Tertullian said, Father makes Son, as Son makes Father. A Father must have a Son, and a Son must have a Father to be a Son. I say that to Francis a bit. Francis, you made me a father. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, it's just it's, it's a simple thing of that of that nature when we're talking about the father and the son. But what about Jesus? Jesus was incarnated, incarnated male. So does that mean that 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 Mary Daly's quote is right? You know, does that mean that maleness is closer to God? No. Jesus could just as easily have been incarnated as female. We can't. Uh, for certain say why not, except to speculate that to be incarnated female would have, uh, and, you know, in that culture and in that time, would not have allowed him to do what he needed to do. Okay, that's natural theology done. I, I'm not very good at that, so apologies if I've made anything wrong there, but that's how I see it. So let's just draw a line through that myth. Maleness is not closer to divinity. And let's return to this um, this proposition that that it is the relational interdependence that's going on in the text here that's being highlighted. It's the relational interdependence between the male and the female body that's this icon of God's presence in creation, in this temple which he's set up, that he places male and female into his temple and says, I made this to be an image of, of, of me. To quote uh, Paul in Ephesians 5, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So in Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, Paul looks at the relationship between a husband and a wife as an icon like this, as a, as a signpost, something he's pointing to, something that reveals something about Jesus' relationship to us, to the church. And the word mystery, which he uses there, um, the Greek word mysterion gets translated into Latin, uh, as sacrament, so he this word sacrament is the same word that he's talking about. The sacrament, this this visible sign of an invisible reality. That's what Paul's talking about when he says this is a mystery when he's reflecting on on marriage. Now, 
I am denied when I, when I was thinking about how to talk about this topic, how, you know, whether to dive just headlong into some of the uh, more confusing passages of Scripture. There are a number of passages in the New Testament um, where Paul seems to reinforce a pretty strong patriarchal norm in the church. And I would enjoy to uh, spend time unpacking these, but the more I th- thought about it, the more I thought they're best approached in the context of each letter, rather than plucking each one out of out of the various letters, because there's so many contextual issues going on in each New, New Testament letter, so much that needs to be explained to really appreciate what's going on, and I don't want to do a disservice to the text, so that's my easy out, I don't know, <laughs> but if you do, uh, I, I'm going to look at two, I am going to look at one text, which is really tricky, so, so if you're like, uh, you're all trying to weasel out of this. No, I will. I'll look at Ephesians 5, don't worry. Um, and I'll look at Corinthians 7 as well, First Corinthians 7. But um, if you are keen in the meantime to look into Paul's thinking on gender in greater depth, I recommend this little book. It's nice and little, so it's easy to read. Um, terrible title, though. Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Haircuts. It, um, it's a good It's a good. A neat little read, um, and then if you're really interested, you can go for something a bit chunkier. Um, this is a great book by Cynthia Long Westfall called Paul and Gender. And then there's also a new one which has just come out by Nijay Gupta, who's a great New Testament scholar, called Tell Her Story. So there's lots out there, uh, is what I'm saying. But I'm just going to give a bit of a brief sketch through some stuff here. Okay, so let's get back to that that mystery of marriage that Paul describes in Ephesians 5 for a moment. Um, and so let's do that by reading Ephesians 5, 21 to 32. Starting from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. And then he quotes from Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Okay. So before we say anything, um, I think it's just worth acknowledging that, you know, this these instructions, what, what our, our eye trains straight away to wives submit to your husbands, right? It's the first thing your eye goes, what? And bounces on. Well, this, you know, this instruction for wives to submit to husband, to their husbands has been used for all kinds of evil. And, um, you know, as Shakespeare once wrote, the devil can cite scripture to his purposes. So 
we all know that people can use the Bible to subjugate people, and we know that the Bible has been used historically to subjugate women as well as slaves and children. So I offer no defense for that, um, except to say that scripture in the wrong hands is dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. Um, I also want to say that this passage offers a profound and, believe it or not, a beautiful icon of marriage, despite some of the language and terminology being potentially quite triggering for people. Um, so all I ask is that you stay with me just for a little bit while we read through this. And acknowledging those feelings will be in the room. So let verse 21 catch your attention first. Let that first catch your attention. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because that line would have grabbed attention in Ephesus much more than anything else that followed that line would have interrupted people's train of thought. Much more than wives submit to your husbands. That would have been, yeah, yeah, yeah. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ would have been shocking. It cut against the grain of that culture, of a status-soaked honor-shame culture in which women and children and slaves were constantly put down here and told to submit. That was a given in that, in that time. So, so that would have been completely uncontroversial, whereas uh, the situation for us is totally inverted. We read the first thing and go, yeah, yeah, and then we read the second part and go, whoa, hold on. Um, so just, just keeping that in mind, I guess. So we get to verse 21 and we say yes, and then we get to wife, submit to your husbands, and um, as you do to the Lord, and we feel like we want to slam the Bible shut, you know. We want to throw it across the room, I don't know. We say, why, Paul, did you write that? Um, why is that in there? Uh, why did he say the husband is the head of the wife? And this question overshadows everything for, for the rest of the time we're reading, if we continue reading. Um, and it makes us miss the point entirely. So like I've been saying you know, last week and this week, male and female are made equal and equally made in the image of God. So why is Paul talking about the husband being the head of the wife? Paul has not forgotten Genesis. He's not like um, forgotten that that's there. In fact, he quotes it. It's right, it's right there in the center of his view. Um, and interestingly, this word head, this is a little bit technical, but in, in Greek, the word head is used a little bit more malleably than we use it. There's a various ways of using that word, but um, the word head that could easily match that Greek word, kephale, is the word source, as in the source of a river or the headwaters of a river. So throughout Paul's letters, he constantly refers to the order of creation, where Adam was created first, and then you know created out of the dust, if you remember in Genesis 2, Adam was formed out of the dust, and then God breathes his spirit into, into him, and he becomes an animated being, whereas Adam, uh, whereas Eve was taken out of the side of Adam, taken from the side of him um, in a sort of second creation story um, as Adam was put into a deep sleep. And we talked about that word side last week, about it being not just, a, not just literally a side, but a, a, like the side of a, 
sacred piece of architecture like a temple or, or the tabernacle. Um, so for Paul, this does not mean that the woman is lesser uh, in terms of a lesser status, but on the contrary, he actually seems, if you track with him in other parts of the New Testament, he seems to view females as almost having a kind of extra glory. Um, a, a, there's something kind of extra special about women that, in Paul's mind. Um, now there's heaps to say here. Like I say, there's 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 all sorts of things that need to be said and could be said, but but I can't right now. That's why I've given you some book recommendations. But it's true, you know. Uh, it's true that Paul doesn't say, as a rule, everybody submit to everybody else in some kind of um, non-hierarchical, anarchic situation. He's speaking into uh, these are like a genre of New Testament literature called household codes. They were all through the, that part of the ancient world. He's using a common type of literature. Um, and he's not saying everybody submit to everybody. He's tracking with the, this pattern of, um, of order, I guess. Um, he's speaking into a strictly codified and socially stratified culture. And he's using this typical genre yeah, known as a household code. So, but he's totally messing with it. He's, he's completely um, messing with it and messing with the Ephesians as he does this. So how so, you ask? Um, well, uh, firstly, Paul is telling Ephesian households, and he's specifically telling married men, that they no longer have license to dominate their families. That's no longer something they have. Um, despite the prevailing culture around them, telling them that they own everything, he's saying, no, you don't. Anymore. In fact, Christ's treatment of the church as his bride was now the guiding principle that would inform the husband's relationship to his wife. Now, that's particularly interesting, I think, when you think about the fact that the husband was also a believer and part of the church. So the husband identifies himself as the head, but at the same time, he identifies himself as the body as well, because he's part of this body. And Christ is. The, the head of the husband. Um, so that's why Paul makes this you know, reminder for, for the husband to treat his wife as he has been treated by his own head and source, Jesus. So it follows you know, that the, the husband is to lay down his life for his wife. Christ's love is illustrated in this part of, this, of, of Ephesians um, by the sanctification of the church, the, the cleansing of the church, which is described in this passage in terms of domestic chores, all of which are women's work in, in this culture. So um, chores normally performed by women, like giving a bath, providing clothing, doing laundry, providing food and nurture. These are all of the things which Paul is saying, this is what the husband is to do for his wife. Um, interesting, eh? So Paul has connected the husband with the head and the wife with the body, and, and in that sense, he's, he's also created this functional unity between wife and, and husband, uh, using this metaphor of a body, which highlights, I think, um, this biological interdependency. Imagine a head warring against its own body. That would not be good. Um, or a body warring against its own head. That would not be good. Um, so this challenges, this interdependency challenges any sense of a, of a hierarchical, domineering relationship. And then Paul supports this head-body uh, metaphor with a citation from the climax of the creation account, like I said, in Genesis, where husband and wife become one flesh. 
So let me say again, um, when Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, he has Genesis 2 in mind, which is not a message of domination, but of bodily unity. Okay, here's a long quote from this book by Cynthia Long Westfall. This is how she puts it. The husband as the wife's head and the wife as his body in marriage became a profound mystery for Paul because he could use this metaphor as a paradigm for the church. This is the basis for one of his most powerful illustrations. The church is Christ's body, which derives its life from him, shares his high position and authority and functions in unity and service as the different members of his body. As his body, believers are completely identified with Christ in his human status. He made them heirs of God and joint heirs with himself. The analogy between Christ and the husband should lead men to share authority, status, power, and resources, and bring freedom that is comparable to what their head, Jesus Christ, provided for them and intends for the rest of his body. Men should love women and treat them literally like themselves, not just as they imagine they would like to be treated or want to be treated if they were women. Therefore, Paul has applied Jesus' summary of the law and prophets to the marriage relationship. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I don't know if you could get a higher view of marriage than that. Um, to see it as an icon of Christ's relationship to the church, as, as Paul does here. That kind of faithfulness, that kind of self-sacrificial love, that kind of service in marriage would make the world stand up and take notice. That would be uh, a living icon of Christ if people saw that. It would be akin to a living image of God. Now, of course, we don't live in Genesis 2, do we? Genesis 3 has happened. So we live in a, I guess, in a Genesis 3 world where the harmony between male and female, between husband and wife, has been distorted where harmony has become discord. Genesis 3 describes one of the outcomes of the fall as being this unfulfilled and unequal desire and domination within marriage. So why, then, is Paul talking about marriage in such elevated terms? In order to really understand Paul's theology of male and female, we need to understand that everything he taught, everything Paul taught, and everything that Jesus taught, and actually everything that the whole Bible teaches and points towards can only be properly understood by understanding uh, the coming kingdom of God. Because what I said before, you know, that we live in a Genesis 3 world is actually not quite the full story. You know, it's only partially true. We live in a Genesis 2 world and a Genesis 3 world. And we also live on the other side of Jesus' work. We will live in a world in which Jesus has begun something. He's inaugurating and, and bringing something to completion, which is what he and the Hebrew prophets called the kingdom of God, and which Paul refers to as life in the spirit. It's the same thing. We live our lives caught between promise and fulfillment. We caught, we li this is where marriage lives. We live uh, 
in a way where the kingdom has already arrived in Christ and the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. So we'll never understand marriage or singleness, for that matter. Um, we'll, we'll experience marriage as profoundly frustrating and painful uh, and unfulfilling. And we'll experience singleness as profoundly frustrating and, um, and unfulfilling until we understand that we live in this tension, in this caught between of the now of new creation and the not yet of old creation, all at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, cool. So I've spoken a, a lot about being male and female in the context of marriage this morning, and not everybody here is married, and maybe not everybody here wants to be married. Um, you know, uh, I'm also conscious of the fact that marriage and sex in general are treated as an idol in our culture, as a, as a, as a replacement for God, as a way that our deepest desires get projected onto, onto marriage or onto, onto sex. That if we can have this, um, that we'll be truly fulfilled. And that is true too in the world, it's true here in the church. We could blame some European philosopher for that, Rousseau or Freud or whoever, um, somebody for convincing us that sexual fulfillment is the deepest, truest part of us. But we don't actually need European philosophers to tell us that, I think. Um, you know, Just try, if you think about it, any culture that you can think of, any culture, ancient or modern, Eastern or Western, where singleness isn't treated in some way as a kind of affliction, as a kind of deficit, and where marriage, in whatever form it takes, is not treated as, a, as a, a natural goal of being human. Every culture has this in it. It's, it's actually, um, you know, we don't need billboards that, that sell it to us, and either explicitly or implicitly. This idea is ingrained at a biological level. That's what makes it so powerful and so difficult. And it's also what makes Christianity so radical, and so different, because unlike any other major world religion or culture, Christianity has always upheld singleness, not only as a viable way of life, but as an icon of Christian faithfulness, equal to marriage. So prior to the advent of Jesus into the world, to be single or to be childless was seen as a curse. We all know the stories in the Old Testament uh, of the sort of the utter desolation that that women felt, uh, the social ostracism that they experienced by not being able to bear children, but ever since Jesus has begun his work of establishing the kingdom of God, the church has celebrated singleness as a dignified and even blessed status. Indeed, sometimes the church has even gone as far as to make singleness a goal. We see this a bit in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he suggests that it would be better if people aimed to be single and celibate like himself. This is what he says. Uh, this is First Corinthians seven twenty-six. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Isn't that weird? Um, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. 
Now, what's happened to Paul? <laughs> he, he wrote Ephesians and then something happened. Um, he had a very bad day or uh, <laughs> someone slighted him. I don't know. I'm not sure. It just feels very puzzling. Even that line, if you do marry, you have not sinned. Like who thinks, oh, gee, I don't want to marry because I might be sinning. Oh, maybe you think that. I don't know. What happened to Paul? I don't know. Um, but But I think, you know, I don't think there's an inconsistency here, even though it feels a little strange when we put Ephesians and 1 Corinthians 7 together. Um, I think it's entirely consistent with, with Paul's theological grid that I described, this, um, this, uh, this now not yet of the kingdom. So marriage, uh, I think what Paul's saying, you know, marriage in this age of the now and the not yet, uh, or in what Paul calls this, the present crisis, um, marriage is a signpost to Christ and the church. And one should know the difference between a signpost and the thing it points to. Hey, like if you were going to the beach and you saw a sign that said, beach this way, would you like get your towel and lay it down and sit underneath the sign and, you know, um, try and go for a swim? No, you wouldn't. You'd recognize this is a sign. It's pointing some, somewhere and that's where I need to be going, not the sign. So um, we, we ought to know the difference between the sign and, the, and what it signifies. So... Um, Singleness and marriage are both relativized in this age when the kingdom of God is at hand, in this time between promise and fulfillment. And Paul goes on to explain a little bit more here. This is what he says. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. In other words, don't invest too much of yourself, too much of your identity into anything here and now, because the kingdom of God is breaking in. It's almost here. It's at hand. If you're married, that's okay. But don't live as if that's what's going to fulfill you. And, you know, similarly, if you're happy, that's good. Live with your eyes towards the horizon, not towards your, your, your partner or to your money or to anything like that. Yearn for Jesus' return. So if you're mourning a loss, I think that's what Paul's saying, if you're mourning a loss, I don't think he's being mean or cruel. He's saying if you're mourning a loss, you know, that's hard. But don't live as if your loss is final. Remember, joy is coming. Similarly, if you're happy now, great, that's fine. Just don't fall into the trap of thinking that your current happiness will mean anything in light of what's coming. If you're rich, cool, but don't become attached to your wealth. Your money isn't coming with you where you're going. And then Paul starts speaking uh, into, I think, a very real and relatable issue that married people face, which isn't often talked about um, as a significant mer uh, hazard of married life, but I think it is, you know. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and, that, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. 
I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. What's Paul saying here? I think he's saying something like, it's very easy for your spouse to replace Jesus. Um, it's very easy. Um, I'm not meaning that in the sense that uh, I start thinking Sarah is God or something like that, but maybe. Um, I think it's more this thing of, um, yeah, the, that we begin to, where we would run to Jesus, we begin running to our spouse, or where we would um, seek comfort from him, we begin seeking it somewhere else. Um, I think this is the, the risk that, that Paul's talking about, um, that we would start to think, uh, that we would start to seek our comfort elsewhere into things which are more immediate, um, fulfillment. Everybody who gets married thinks, now I will be fulfilled. <laughs> and you realize, ah, no, actually, that's not what happened. Um, it's good, but it's not fulfillment. Um, your spouse won't fulfill you, or any sexual partner won't fulfill you, uh, or any sexual fantasy won't fulfill you. Um, they all can be ways that stop us from running to Jesus. So marriage and sex is good, but it becomes an idol of self-fulfillment very, very easily. Beware. That's what Paul's saying. Beware. And wasn't that the original temptation, you know, all the way back in the garden, if we think about it? Wasn't that the very lie that the serpent planted in Eve's mind? God's holding out on you. God has something, and he's not giving it to you. And you need it, and you want it. And you won't be fulfilled until you have it, Eve. But you can have it now. Just reach out and just grab it. That was the original lie. And that temptation has not changed. Um, we, we still face that temptation, that we would seek fulfillment in immediate things. Um, but we live with a real taste of deep fulfillment already that won't be met by marriage or sex or singleness. And we also have a living sign of this promise, this icon, which is in this room. This is... Us, this church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel spoke good news to a culture where single people were treated as a drag on society. You know, it's no accident that the early church was full of widows. In the Greco-Roman world, to be single was contemptible. It was even illegal at times. If someone was single, they were forced to get married within two years um, and at some times. But in the church, however, singleness followed a path that was forged by Christ himself. He never saw the need to marry. He never uh, succumbed to that temptation that his needs wouldn't be met. That he would need to, you know, that he would live an unfulfilled life if he didn't get married and have a family. He set his eyes on a future promise. Um, he set his eyes on a future marriage, a future wedding ceremony, which Claire talked about. So, being made in the image of God, male and female, I think is inescapably about our relationship to each other. It's, it's pretty clear in the text, but... The perfect human, the true human, the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, 
He shows us that our deepest longings will only ever be met by God. So marriage is a signpost of this union. It shows us the shape of the gospel, of the good news. But singleness shows us its sufficiency. Why don't we stand?